Okay, let's continue with Abraham and Lot. So Genesis chapter 16, we'll start with verses 1 to 3 this morning. Let's continue our look at uh, the life of Abraham and Lot. And Lot's been pretty silent the last few chapters because a lot of it's centered around Abraham. Obviously, there's so much stuff going on with his life and with the Lord. And last time we looked at uh, God uh, reiterating his promise. And we'll have a, a bit of a re reread about uh, a portion of that anyway. Uh, but we'll start with Genesis 16, verses 1 to 3. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bet him no children. And she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Let's um, go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we just do thank you for this time. We just thank you for your word, and we just pray that you would open up our eyes to your truth. Lord, our prayer is that uh, we would grow through everything we read. And even though we, uh, we see difficulties and problems and mistakes being made in, the, in your word, Father, we know that they are all there for a reason. And I pray that you would teach us, Father, the truth today, that we might learn to avoid those errors which have been made even by those who we consider great people in the faith. So we pray for your Spirit's work in our hearts. We pray if there are any that are unsaved here today, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself and that you would open up their eyes to the truth. And Father, I pray that um, our hearts be drawn closer to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Last, evening, or last night, we had the distinct pleasure of uh, being together at my, my brother's house. Um, uh, my younger brother's uh, daughter uh, is being married. We're getting married soon, in about a week's time, and I'll ha I have the privilege of actually celebrating that, uh, of actually performing that uh, wedding ceremony, which will be a blessing. So last night was something new for us because, as you know, we have an Italian background. But my, um, my niece is marrying a, uh, a fellow from Kenyan background, okay? So we were invited all last night to my brother's house for a Kenyan thing, okay? So for a Kenyan sort of tradition. And this tradition would normally happen in Kenya in a particular way where the, where the I think it's all the, the, the Propose or the, the the groom's family would all go to the the bride's uh, proposed bride's house, and they would bring gifts. Okay, and then they and there was an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the families to get to know each other before the actual wedding ceremony, because I think Kenyan culture makes it pretty clear that when you marry, when two people get married, it's not just them getting married. It's actually their whole families getting married together. So you want to know what the family's like before you get wedded. And you sort of explained it. They explained it to us because we were like completely ignorant of what's going on. But there was food, so we understood that part. <laughs> then there was, uh, there was some Kenyan dancing. So they were, they were doing their stuff and they were getting all excited, which was a beautiful thing to see because it's a celebration of what's coming up and also a celebration of the fact that, hey, these two families have looked at each other, they've sussed each other out. And they said, yes, you know, we think your, the way they put it was just beautiful. They said, we have looked at your daughter and we have seen that she is, has been brought up well. 
and that she loves the Lord and that she is a person with whom our son has taken interest and we acknowledge her um, and we accept her. We will accept her into our family if you accept us. And that was the whole thing of the evening, which was absolutely a beautiful time. So, but these uh, Kenyans are Christians. So they've got, I think they've, they've sort of tweaked it a bit, okay, and they've made it, they've made it acceptable. I'm, I'm assuming that that ceremony may be also slightly different and varied depending on what your, um, your religion is, but it was just a beautiful time because yes, they're Christians and my brother's family is Christian and um, and so it was just a, a beautiful celebration. There was prayer and there was a, a whole lot of eating and celebrating. So weddings are a beautiful thing. Um, but culture is okay to a certain point, isn't it? Because sometimes culture contradicts what God teaches. And so we need to be, um, to be careful about how much of our culture is actually affecting how much we believe and what we believe. Because sometimes, you know, I think every, every person is generally happy with their own culture and in a sense some people are very proud of their culture, maybe the history of their culture. But in many cases the culture uh, draws people away from God and is, is contrary to the word of God. And so we're going to find today that culture and rational thinking and those types of things and thinking of the day um, need to be tempered against the Word of God when it comes to making decisions. Now, I understand that for all of us, we're going through a, a pretty um, tumultuous time, what we would consider uh, a, a fast-changing world uh, around us. Not only is technology actually changing at a rapid rate, but so many norms that are that we've just been used to are actually changing and some of them are okay some of them are not necessarily okay so sometimes our faith in the context of where we live and what's going on around us is often stretched as we try to deal with and make sense of circumstances and challenges that arise in our life and the western world seems to be moving away or transitioning away from its christian foundation it's essentially saying, well, we want to go in this progressive sort of way. And, and they've said, well, okay, we don't, we don't like certain things and other things we like. And they're trying to hold on to certain things. And, but many of the things that, that Christians have traditionally valued um, are being left to the side. But as Christians in a fast-changing world, um, we should never lose sight of the fact that for the majority of history, Christians have been in the minority. And Christians have often lived in hostile environments. And it's, we're not called to fight. We're not called um, uh, to arms or anything like that. We are called to love, even those people that regard themselves as our enemies. And that's a difficult thing to do sometimes. Um, what's definitely true is that this pocket that we live in, that we consider when we look at the freedoms that we have, and we look at the the benefits that we have in our society and we look at the the the, the democracies that we live in all the benefits that we have in, in this world is actually quite a small pocket in history because most of history has actually persecuted people who aren't part of the norm have 
And most of the times, what we would consider um, Bible-believing Christians have been persecuted. And what's interesting is that the majority of times they've been persecuted not by governments, okay, even though governments have been um, sometimes hostile towards Christianity. Their biggest threat has been often the organised church. With the organised church, when I, I call it Christendom, and you guys know, when I use Chris, the word Christendom, I'm using it as a very, very, in a very loose sort of sense. Because there may be people that are saved within Christendom, but Christendom is like almost like a political animal. And oftentimes where, where, that, particular, where that particular animal has taken hold um, over, over time, it has persecuted, persecuted people, people who don't agree, people who are different, people who are <laughs> Bible-believing Christians. So trying to live your faith is hard enough as it is. But imagine a, a position where you didn't have the Word of God in your hands. Imagine this for a moment, where you face challenges in your life and you don't have the Bible to fall back on. You, don't, you can't read the Psalms that encourage you. You can't read Paul's epistles that, that guide you and give you these precious principles that we hold on to. If you took away the Word of God from us, where would we be? What would I be talking about on a Sunday morning? And if we think about that this morning, as we go into this particular passage, I'm hoping it'll, it'll help us to understand and appreciate the challenges to faith, even for someone like Abraham and Sarah. The scriptures tell us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So imagine being in a position where God's come to you and spoken to you, has told you to do certain things, but they're things that you're holding onto yourself. And the Bible, Genesis, is still over 400 years away from being written. Genesis. And God visited Abraham and called him out. And so in a sense, Abraham had God's words. He had those promises that he heard. But in a very limited sense, right? Didn't have all the things that we take for granted. But holding on to those precious words and making sense of how everything fits together in a world that was, that was contrary to his thinking, being surrounded by people who were very different with, with the, in their thinking and in their desires, worshipping different gods and doing all types of things, having the cravings of his own flesh. I mean, he, he had his own flesh to contend with as well. And then on top of that, being made promises, but then year after year, seeing your wife, who was 65 when she leaves Ur, the Chaldees, go to 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, 74, 75 years of age and still no child. You may be tempted to find some way At what point do you allow the culture and the thinking around you to begin to guide your thinking with respect to God? How much of the culture do you let in? How much of the culture do you do you make or allow to be your decision, to be in your decision-making processes? And so this is really a sermon about that. Um, coming from an Italian culture, I'm well aware 
of the superstitions held on to my, by my relatives and my ancestors. Superstitions, plenty of them. They say they believe in God, but also believe in this thing called the evil eye. That believe in a whole lot of things that are meant to be lucky for you and unlucky for you and numbers this and, and particular things they hold on to. And, and I look at that and I think to myself, wow, what a mix. When you mix up the truth with a lie, what do you end up with? It's just a lie. And so, a challenge for us today is to be very careful about inserting human reason and culture and the ideas of culture and all those types of things um, into God's truth when it seems as if we don't have enough information. Does that make sense to everyone? Where it seems there's a gap that God hasn't given you all the fine details, what do I put in there? How do I fill up that gap? This is a test that faced Abraham and Sarah when they were not having children after 10 years of being in the promised land. Go back with me to Genesis 15 for a moment. Genesis 15. Look at verses 1 to 6. Because this is the, the promise... So right, the, the very uh, chapter before, God's spoken to Abraham. He's made a covenant with Abraham and he's actually reiterated his promise and given him more detail about that as well, which Abraham needed because he asked the question. Genesis 15, 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Verse 2 then says, And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is my name. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, and if they'll be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So it's certain that when Abraham left that conversation, how do you think he would have been feeling? Pretty good. Huh? Hey, you got God has come to you and says, have a look at the stars and the sky. Count them. Can you count those? <coughs> That's how your descendants are going to be. And Abraham's thinking to, you know, Abraham came to him and said, but I've got no child. And, Abraham, and God says, don't worry. Your descendants are going to come from you. They're not going to come from Eliezer or anyone else that's uh, in your household. I'm going to make you this promise that your descendants are going to come directly from you and be as countless as the actual stars. And so what do you reckon Abraham would have done after he got that wonderful news from God? He would have gone back and told Sarah. Sarah. And inevitably he would have shared this with her and told her about God's assurances and how God had told him about, you know, the, all the stars in the heavens and he might have taken Sarah. Come outside the tent, Sarah. Let me show you what God showed me. Yeah? So he probably would have told her about those things. What a promise. But 
even at that particular time, Sarah, who was now 75 years of age, might have been absolutely wrapped, absolutely excited. But the question, there's a missing piece in there for her that might have caused them to veer off the particular path that God had chosen for them. And while Abraham may have been excited about telling her all this stuff, the question may have lingered in her mind is, where do I fit in this? He's promised that the sense are going to be from you, but I'm 75 years old. Which woman 75 years old has children? So let's go look at verse 1 in chapter 16. It says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had handmaid. all the people, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, and he's speaking to the people of Israel when they entered the promised land, and he says, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old times. It's the other side of the Euphrates River. Even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abram from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all of the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. So uh, Abram, along with his father Terah and his brother uh, Nahor, were worshipping other gods and had grown up for most of their lives in a pagan culture. And so Abraham had brought with him customs. When you leave, when God calls you from a place, you don't just drop all your customs in one go and drop the way you think. I mean, how many of us are struggling with the word of God in our hands to think rightly? 
Does anyone not struggle? Can you imagine not having the word of God and being called out of a culture where you've grown up with and actually try to think the way God wants you to think? He had to, he needed time to relearn and understand things from God's perspective. When we speak of Abraham as the father of faith, if we had what Abraham had, which was not very much, I wonder how far we would have got. God has shown himself a number of times to Abraham, but not to Sarah. So every time that God approaches Abraham and speaks to him, Sarah hears that conversation from Abram. But she hasn't seen God herself. And so she's trying to fill in the blanks from those conversations. And there was enough doubt in her mind regarding her own role in this promise and her increasing frailty as a person that she began to look for ways to fulfill this promise herself where she could be a part of it. Um, The same thing happens today. The same thing, that type of thinking is rife in our age. And the Bible says the Lord instituted the church. Who started the church? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he is the cornerstone of the church. The first one, the first block that was put down that, that actually creates the foundation for it. Then it says that the apostles and the prophets were laid as a foundation. And then we have been built up over time on this foundation. There is no other foundation that can be built other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles and prophets. Okay. And Jesus said that, that, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And the Lord instituted, when it comes to the church, he instituted that the preaching of the word would be central. You take away the preaching of the word from the church, you don't have a church. But many modern churches have looked at our society, they've looked around, they've looked at the youth in our society, and they've looked away, the things are changing, um, and they see that the youth like going to parties. The youth like going to dances. The youth are listening to music very, very often. And they thought to themselves, okay, God, look, you don't understand what we have to cope with in our days. You know, we have to compete with a lot of things that are taking the attention from our people, especially our youth. If you lose the youth, you've lost it all because the next generation has gone. And so they've looked at this thing and they've got, they're competing with sports. They're competing with entertainment. They're competing with video games. They're competing with having fun together. They're competing with a whole range of things in society. And they've looked at it and they've said, well, we're going to have to fight fire with fire, aren't we? For us to stay relevant, we're going to have to do similar to that so we can attract those younger people in our churches. So, Lord, um, not sure if you understand what's going on over here, but we're going to have to change things to make things work now. We'll have to tone down that Bible preaching a bit. You know, we can't drag it on for a whole hour like Pastor Frank does in that independent Baptist church over there. I mean, how on earth do they even stay awake for a whole hour with that guy? Maybe, we'll, maybe what we'll do, because we want to make it more zesty, we'll make it a bit more impactful, and maybe we'll limit it to about 15 or 20 minutes. Because if we limit it to 15 or 20 minutes, that's how long apparently science tells us people have got an attention span for. 
And if you've got that attention span, we'll just work right within that. Okay, whatever culture tells us, we're going to work right within that, Lord. And we have, we're going to have to offer some pretty good entertainment there as well to compete with the, the music that's in the culture. And so well, we're, going to, we're going to change. We're going to actually take the worship and we're going to mix it with entertainment to make it relevant. And if we can do that, Lord, we're pretty sure that we're going to be able to get to keep the church filled because we don't want the church falling over. Now, you you said that the you know the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, but we've got, we've got the plan for that to happen. And by the way, we'll have to also include um, you know female pastors as well, because today the you know the if if there's only men up there at the front, you're seen as like a, a bigoted person. Oh, we know your word says, you know, the, the, the pastor's meant to be the husband of one wife. And we know all the other stuff that it says about that. And, you know, Lord, but, but we have to adapt with the times. We really do. Because our world expects quotas for women now. And so there has to be a quota in the church as well. So we're sure you'll understand about that. By the way, we'll have to create some easier versions of the Bible to read. That Bible is just a little bit too complicated for most people with all those words. And what we'll have to do, we'll have to tone it down a bit. It talks about stuff like blood being shed and sacrifices being made, all that sort of stuff. I think we'll get rid of a lot of those words to make it easier for people to read and easier for people to understand and accept. We'll do that as well. I think that's probably a good idea. In fact, what we'll do, we'll create so many versions of the Bible that we won't even expect them to bring a Bible to church anymore. They can just come to church, enjoy the actual uh, entertainment. We'll put a few verses on the on the PowerPoint because we've got new technology, Lord. You didn't know about that one. We've got new technology, and uh, and we can put a few verses on there depending on what suits us at the time. And we can and we can even change the message, Lord. You know, rather than making it convicting, you know, people don't want to be convicted of sin. They don't. Be, we can't talk about sin. I mean, as soon as you tell someone about sin, they get all like upset. So, Lord, we'll, we won't talk about sin anymore. We won't talk about, you know, they're under the condemnation of God or, or that they're going to hell if they're not, you know, if they're not saved and that salvation only comes through Jesus. We'll try and tone that down a bit as well. And we'll, uh, and we'll, make, it, we'll make it easy for people to accept. So we'll make it seeker sensitive. Yeah, that's the one. So when people are searching for God, we'll make it so comfortable for them that they'll just walk in and feel totally at home. Maybe we'll make those sermons rather than talking straight about from the Bible because, Lord, your stories you've put in there, they're not really relevant. So her mind became fertile ground to find a solution that made sense to her. And unfortunately, Abram listened to her. Sometimes something seems like a very practical solution. And sometimes those practical solutions may offer and promise quick results that may produce headaches down the road. Look at verse 3 of Genesis 16. So it says, And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. So as you remember, as you recall, Abram and Sarah spent some time in Egypt, which was another doubtful decision. 
And during their time there, Abraham also failed another test. And the result of that was that they came out of Egypt with a whole lot of goods and other things. Um, and one of those things was Hagar. So now in a time of testing and doubt, there she was. Available to drive them in a direction away from God's will. And this is a, an important lesson for us. You know when you make, when you lead and go into a direction that God does not want you to be in, or if you go somewhere and you say, oh, I think that's the way, you know, is the best solution for this particular problem that I've got, but you haven't heard from the Lord, you haven't lined it up with his word, you haven't gone to him in prayer, what ends up happening after you've taken that detour and you've come back to the road, you've actually come back on that road, on the right road, with some extra baggage. And the extra baggage has stuff in there that you don't necessarily know what it is. But later on, when, think, when you're presented with another challenge, the bag gets opened. And that headache comes out, which is exactly what happened with these two. By all accounts, Hagar was a good servant to them. By the looks of it, she hadn't put a foot wrong because a wife is not going to be offering a servant if she was a troublemaker, would she? Apparently, she, was, she must have been okay. She must have been a healthy person because you know, Sarah would have thought, well, she's healthy, she's young, she's a good servant. You know what I mean? She hasn't, she hasn't given me any trouble. So maybe she's the one that we can use here. She's probably good looking as well. Well, you don't want... She wasn't a good looking person. You know, you give it to the husband, the kids may not turn out the best there. So I think in, 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 uh, in Sarah's mind, she was ticking all the, this, that she was ticking all the boxes. You know, she's, she's here, we got her, we got her as a gift maybe from God. Here you go, there's another one. You know, and she's been faithful and she's, you know, very healthy and she's young and she's, she does everything that I ask her to do. And maybe she'll be very compliant with this as well. Maybe she'll be happy with this too. You know what I mean? We, we get along like a house on fire. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now God sees the end from the beginning. He knows what will come in the future. We don't. We might try and fill in the blanks with our human reason, but oftentimes we, we get the thing completely wrong. Um, and we suffer the consequences later. Reason, which is what people always fall back on. Reason and what I understand about, about life will never tell you to pray more, will it? Is it, re is it reason that draws you to God's throne in prayer and say, pray more? Never. Will reason ever bring you to the Bible more and to, and to learn and make that the foundation for your life? Never. Reason will not tell you to love other people more because love makes you more vulnerable and it also puts you at risk. There's a whole lot of things that reason, human reason will not do. It will definitely not tell you to offer your life as a living sacrifice to your Savior. 
Now, Adam should have known better. When Eve was being tempted, he failed to protect her and offer her proper spiritual leadership. Abram did likewise with Sarah. I realise that Abram didn't have the Bible. He didn't have a full understanding of God's God's words as, as we do. Right, we have them right in front of us and we can refer to them. Maybe he didn't have, maybe he didn't have all that. Maybe he had some of that. I don't know. Um, maybe he was still trying to learn the ways of God because God had actually spoken to him more than once. But he had God's promises, right? But God never told him to take another wife. God hadn't spoken directly to Sarah. So Sarah had less to work with than Abram. Abram should have, at this particular point, realised what his wife was going through and should have been a better support for her, rather than just saying, okay, dear, yes, dear. He should have used prudence and caution when Sarah urged him to take Hagar as a second wife. What he didn't do is fall back on those words that he'd been given by God. And that's what we should do every time. We have God's words in our hands. We have the benefit of being guided by those words in our decision making. But it seems that even with those words in our hands, we often miss the mark when it comes to making decisions in everyday life. Every decision we make, every one of them, bar none, should be in harmony with the word of God. In harmony. Let the Bible be your guide in life. Use it to help direct your, direct your steps. I mean, Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Charles Spurgeon once said, A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. God urges us to walk according to his word to prove all things, hold fast that which is good. So Abram wasn't cautious enough. He didn't see the immensity of this particular decision he was about to make. And the other thing that he failed to do, rather than falling back on God's words and trusting those words simply, was he failed to pray. There's no record of either of them going to the Lord in prayer and saying, Lord, we don't understand. Can you please make this clear to us? So they failed to pray before they made the decision. Instead, they made an impatient decision, a prayerless decision, a man-centered decision, which will now bear some very difficult fruits for them. Not only if you can imagine Sarah, and for those of you who have tried to have children have struggled with that, you understand that going through that time can be a quite a difficult time for a woman. More so than the man. So Sarah not only has reached 75 years of age, and she's been barren for all of that, she's now got God who's promising her husband he's going to be the father of many nations and have descendants as many as the stars. And she's struggling with all the joy that he had, with all the promises that he'd been given. She could not see her place in it. 
But now, apart from the difficulty of being barren and producing and having no children of her own, now she had the added burden of having to share her husband with another woman. Do you think that would have made her life more joyful? No. So in verse 4 we find, And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Now what she had planned had come to pass. Her servant was pregnant. Her husband's child was on its way with another woman, with a second wife. Could she have possibly been happier? No. But on top of this, her servant now realises that she's holding the preeminent position. She is the one who's going to have the children. Her children are going to be the one who will inherit all of these goods and all of this land. And she's looking at Sarah as if you're no longer needed here. I'm the one who's important. That's why it says that she was despised in her eyes. She began to see herself above Sarah and treated her as inferior. Instead of, instead of life becoming more blessed and happier, Sarah had created a much more difficult position or situation, which is often the case when we replace God's ways with our ways. We often pay for those decisions down the track and our life becomes a lot more complicated. And it became so difficult for Sarah that she ended up unloading all of this frustration back on her husband. And she says in verse 5, she says, And Sarah said unto Abraham, My wrong be upon thee. Her wrong be on you. Right? Be on him. I have given my maid into thy bosom. When she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. Wow, they're strong words. And that's not a woman that's, that's you know, unemotional here. There's a lot of emotion in that. And I know what the men are thinking here already. And what possibly may have gone through Abram's mind. What do you mean it's all on me? You came up with this idea and gave it to me, didn't you? This started with you. And if he was Italian, he'd probably be doing this sort of stuff. What's going on here? But in the end, it was he who agreed to the proposal. And he was the one who lay with Hagar. His wife was an obviously in a vulnerable and emotional state. She wanted him to have a son. She couldn't see herself in, in that situation, so she came up with something that might fulfill that. She presented a solution which came to her in a period obviously of intense pressure and emotional distress. Abraham, who wasn't in an emotional position, position should have known his wife better 
and then be more patient with her and more considerate. And he should have been more in, in line with what the Lord would have wanted before he agreed. This passage makes it look as if, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't you go and, you know, you go and sleep with mine. So, yeah, no worries. Life, okay, done. We're booking it in. There's no argument here. There's no prayer here. There's no waiting time here. There's no... He just agrees with her. And I get the impression here that he's agreed with her just to keep her quiet. He knew that his wife loved him. He'd been together with her for 75 years. Think about that for a moment. I mean, he's, how many people reached that milestone in their marriage? Did they not know each other well? Did they not love each other? She, he was the only man in her life. And for the sake of having a son, for him, he sacrificed his own marriage. I want, I want you to turn to 1 Peter with me just for a moment. Because what I understand to be very clear is that the position that Abraham had with respect to his wife. Remember, ladies, when I asked you, which of you would follow your husband without asking questions into another land and sell your home when you're that old? How many of you would do that without an argument, do you think? Yet Sarah called her husband Lord. And she was here with him. She'd come all that way. She did leave. And 1 Peter 3, uh, 3 5 to 7. This is what puts the burden on Abraham more than Sarah. Because Sarah had submitted to him. 1 Peter 3.5 says, And after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him, Lord, my master, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, now listen to these words, Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You know, when, when one person puts themselves in submission to another person, then the burden of the decisions made fall on which one? The higher one, every time. And Sarah did that. She had allowed her life to be uprooted because God had spoken to him about a promise. She, had, she was living in that land because of him. She was in that position because of him. Because she wanted him to be faithful to God and for God to fulfill all his promises through him. When you lead another, or another has put themselves in submission to you, as Sarah did to Abram, you must bear the decisions that you make. Because ultimately, you have the final say. 
That is the burden of being a husband, a father, a pastor, or any other type of leader. You know, James warns people, be not many masters among you, because they receive the greater condemnation. Why? Because when you make decisions, if someone comes to me and says, Pastor Frank, you know, I've got this great idea about evangelizing. And I'll say, yeah, tell me about it. huh?" If we went on the internet and we offered people $200 just to hear the gospel, just to hear a, a, a three-minute presentation of the gospel, I reckon we get a lot of people who would listen to it. Yes, you probably would. And if I said, go for it, and then next week when we get to church, there's newspapers all over the windows, and we've got no money and we're, we're bankrupted, can that person be the one to blame? Because they came up with that, that idea? No. Whose fault is it? It's mine. You see, when you're in a position of authority, you have to bear the burden of the decision. Sarah came to her Lord with that idea. Abraham just went with it. When you are a father, when you are a husband, when you are a pastor or you are any type in any type of position of authority or leadership, you must bear the responsibility. Sarah didn't go off in her own direction. She came to him with that idea. She didn't go out disobeying him. No, she brought this idea to him and she submitted herself to him. If she'd done it alone, you know, he could have said, you know, well, this is your fault because you're the one who organised it. But he was in the middle of it. He agreed to it and he didn't think about his wife. She relied on his judgment, on his wisdom. But he didn't use a whole lot of wisdom in this particular case. He was the one who spoke to God himself. And she knew that. So she would have relied on that. But the choice that he made affected her greatly. More than it affected him. And he failed this First Peter 3.7 verse to dwell with his wife with knowledge. He knew his wife, but he didn't quite use that knowledge. And the challenge I'm going to close with is to the men in this church and those who are seeking to marry. Make sure that you lead your wives in a godly way. Don't take them for granted. Understand that if you expect to be the head of your household and your wife submits herself to you, then you will bear the consequences of the decisions you make for her and for your children. You can blame no one else except yourself. The Bible says that men are to honour their wives as the weaker. Jesus, but to trust and
Thank you. Thank you.